You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today again by Liz Wall, who's a journalist and now congressional candidate, who became known around the world when she publicly resigned on air as a correspondent for the Russian government-sponsored RT television network, where she had worked from 2011 to 2014. You can hear a lot about that uh, and other things inside her life with a podcast that we did about two years ago. It lives in 2017, maybe about a year and a half ago. Uh, So check that out to find out all the reasons why she decided to stop working for RT. I imagine you can figure that out, but at the time, people really didn't understand it as well. Uh, But for now, we're going to talk about some different stuff. So welcome back, Liz. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us again here at SpyCast. Thanks, Vince. It's great to be back. So since we... Since you you stopped at RT, and we didn't talk about this the last time, but I want to kind of focus a little bit on it now, you spent some time overseas in different countries talking to them, certainly countries that border Russia and, and in Eastern Europe, about some of the issues that you saw when you were working for RT. Can you talk a little bit about why you think they invited you over? I think it's a pretty easy explanation, mm-hmm. but I'm going to put, let you do the talking on this. Uh, and, and really what I want to know is, are they more worried about this than we are? And are they more prepared to deal with this than we are? Uh, all very good questions. And yes, as you had mentioned, um, I've been doing a lot of speaking, spreading awareness. I think they were interested in hearing my story and hearing the inside kind of, you know, the inside workings of an organization like RT at a time that this topic has become so salient, not just this one news station, but in terms of foreign meddling, uh, foreign interference and in, in democracies all over the world, um, making big news here after the 2016 right. election. But before 2016, our allies over on the other side of the Atlantic were were freaking out, essentially, uh, especially after Ukraine. Um, that was the time in which I had left the station. Um, and I think now looking back, you know, that was 2014. It's amazing to see how much this issue of Russian disinformation, um, really it is a psychological project that I think from observing and uh, seeing how elections have played out in some countries, it's more, 
it, it sticks more than other countries. Um, we know, for example, that Russians, the Russians tried to do the same exact thing in, in France during the Macron election. Mm. Uh, might have had a big, or might have had an impact, not enough to sway the election, but certainly it worried a lot of people to see somebody like Marine Le Pen gaining traction and gaining the following and having such a fringe voice um, with such a controversial political background now becoming one of the main players. And I think that really worries our allies and people that believe in um, and have counted on kind of this post-World War II liberal democracy, and I mean that with a small L, I Mm. want to stress that, um, that has kind of kept us, uh, uh, both sides of the Atlantic, uh, coming together as allies for decades, um, working together in, um, as allies. Um, the Baltic countries in particular, after Ukraine, they felt ex- especially vulnerable because they actually border Russia. So um, there was a lot of worry that they'd be next, essentially. Uh, they're NATO countries, but they've, we've never really been tested right. to quite the same extent. Well, that's the trick, right, is, is you know, are we willing to go to war over Estonia? Right. Right, right, right. Which certainly, you know, those 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 have been said by not just me, but people like the Speaker of the House and people and others where it's like, why would we go to war over one of these rando little countries? In oh, America? gosh, I know some Estonians and uh, <laughs> I don't think they, they would appreciate being called yes. rando. Right. But the big thing there is that it really does test the alliance because Article five of um, of NATO says an attack on all or an attack on one is an attack on all. So if you're able to break that, you know, um, in, in theory, that alliance, then that kind of crumbles the the essence or the existence of NATO largely. I mean, NATO would collapse. I mean, I think it's clear. I mean, that, that it would be a yeah, joke. Right. I mean, it doesn't work. Right. It's like, OK, one an attack on one or one on one it means an attack on all. Apparently not. Right. Well, and of course, as most people know, the only time that Article 5 has ever been put into practice was after 9-11, when exactly. we were the ones that were attacked. Exactly. Uh, it, it, what's interesting to me is, understandably, most Americans are primarily focused on Russian influence of the American elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the rest of the world saw this, obviously, in 2016, and maybe that was a wake-up call. I'm wondering if, if, as a historian, 20 years from now, the Russians may look at, back at this and regret the 2016 election because... Like the French election, I think people were on the lookout, mm-hmm. right? People were ready for Russian shenanigans mm-hmm. in these elections because Europe is far more politically diverse than we are. There's far more extremes. It seems like it would be easier to exploit those extremes than it was in the United States. But everyone was really, really on edge when all the elections that took place after 2016. So Le Pen may have been far more successful mm-hmm. If it wasn't for the American example. Right. I mean, and a big part of it was kind of the, the role that the media played in, in disseminating the hacked information that Russia had a an interest in spreading. Um, and so when this hacked information came out in, in France, there was more of a court. And I don't even know if it's possible to do here um, with all these hyper partisan news outlets. But there was kind of this this code of, of we're not going to report on this because it's not in the best interest of our of our electoral process at this moment. So, uh, plus one for the French there. Yeah. <laughs> I, so let's bring it back to the United States. You also testified before Congress mm-hmm. about a lot of what you saw at RT and kind of this 
disinformation campaign. That was a couple years ago. Yeah. Um, did it do anything? Have you <laughs> seen any change? I mean, there's obviously been a change in control of the House. Mm. Um, a lot of people assumed that on day one, the Democratic-controlled House would do all these things that everyone's been clamoring for. doesn't seem mm. like, well, it seems like they're taking their time in many respects. Um, certainly one of them would have been election, kind of hunkering down on an election system and making sure this doesn't happen. The states seem to be doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the dis- different disinformation campaigns that Russia still seems to be using effectively against us, I don't see any real congressional action there. Yeah, and that really, really worries me. I think because I know that a big part of Russian disinformation and the way in which they try to manipulate the psychology of the electorate is playing on existing problems, existing grievances. So without naming names, there's some politicians on both sides of the aisles that that really push certain things that, that might be considered to be extreme politically that the other side will just have such a visceral reaction to. And um, and I think that's worrying because that further pulls us away from being able to achieve any kind of consensus as Americans. And I think, you know, it's great. And that one of the great things about being in America and being Americans is our ability to have these kinds of debates. Right. Um, you know, what is the best form of taxation? What is the best way to go about health care? What is the best? But you're seeing all this infighting. But in, in my mind, without a safe democracy, we can't have these other. I, I mean, we can have those other conversations. And of course, they're important. But first and foremost, we need to make sure that we safeguard our elections our electoral process, that it's free from foreign interference so that when the decisions are made, it's made internally as Americans without foreign foreign meddling, especially for meddling from our adversaries right. that do not want the best for our country. I mean, they literally want to rip us apart. And looking at where we are now in 2019, it's, I think it's hard to say that they haven't been successful. Right. I mean, it was to, to foment chaos, and chaos is what they've got. I mean, I think looking last week, at there was a, a debate last week where there's a bill um, that was introduced by the Republicans in the Senate about this so-called late-term abortion, where this was a political football years ago when it went back and forth, and the, the whole idea of partial birth abortion and other things became this, this back and forth. And it's a conversation that Americans have been having since— before Roe v. Wade, Mm -hmm. what was really interesting to me is seeing on Twitter all of the Twitter handles with a bunch of numbers at the end of them, Mm. which, you know, are clearly trolls in many cases. Telltale sign are bots or Russian trolls jumping into this to try to foment this or kind of push like Democrats are baby killers and this and that. And it was clear and it was amazing that they have enough and it's an intelligence person they have enough knowledge of American cultural debates mm. to be able to weigh in effectively and to look like they're really talking like an American on these issues. Like, if you said the same thing about the Russians, I'd be like, uh, vodka sucks. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's not, I mean, and I've studied Russia a long time, but these yeah. are people that are very good right. at understanding these, these divisions within American electorate. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they, that's what they do. They, I, at this troll factory in St. Petersburg, they, 
they they go in from what I understand from the whistleblowers and um, they have they they uh, look at the news and they're like what's divisive today in America or in France for example with the uh, the the yellow jackets. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was something that was uh, exploited. And that's not to say that there's organic anger, um, but they will blow it out of proportion right. and make it seem like democracy is a, fa- a democracy, capitalism in, in all its forms is a failed, uh, a failed system, a flawed system. And, well, um, world, maybe you should look at places like us, Russia, that right. have our conservative va- values intact. Um, of course, that's... Very, very debatable. Um, and we see stuff like this uh, with the infiltration of, of organizations, powerful organizations like the NRA. But we're seeing Russia sees weak, some weak spots in our, in our greater political culture well, where they say, okay, we, we can kind of exploit this very divisive issue. Right. Well, you talk about divisive. I mean, gun rights, right, is, is something that... At some point, going going back in the 1990s, we could have a rational debate mm-hmm. on gun rights, and I don't think it's completely natural that it's gone so far off the deep end now. Where I think this, you can see that this has been kind of pushed forward and prompted mm-hmm. by outside influences, um, because people who could have a legitimate conversation about, hey, maybe you don't need a 300 round magazine for your your, your weapon. Now, just don't. Because just some people would just hear you say that and, and just Exactly, just flip. right? It's like the Second Amendment. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, look, I, I get it. Um, like, we're not trying to... I don't think there's... There's very few people calling for guns to be taken away, but it's just the fact that you can't sit down and say, well, okay, let's look at the numbers. Let's look at what's been happening in throughout the country throughout uh, the past few years. I mean, since Sandy Hook and way before then, really, but... Um, it seemed to have it's 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 it escalated and it's you just for some you cannot have a conversation well and, and, and guns are just one example of this idea where the things we used to be able to sit down and have a rational conversation about rather what side of the political aisle you came on everything has been exacerbated mm-hmm. by these people and russia is a key component but others are doing it as well but russia's gotten really good at it yeah to try to push it's a us thing. <laughs> right to try to push us to where we don't think that we can actually have a conversation about right this. right i mean and that's that's really problematic for democracy it is very yeah. prob- problematic for democracy and you'll see it on things for on issues as as lo- as divisive a long-runningly divisive. Is wrong running, wrong, long-runningly well, well, a word? You know what? Let's make it a word. It's a word. Yeah, you, you get what I'm saying. It's a neologism now. You've invented <laughs> it. So. I'm going to copyright that. Yes. Um, it's probably a word. Uh, but, for example, gun rights has long been a, a, a wedge issue, so to say. So has abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you see that's why the, the Republicans had brought that up to the table because, because it was so – it was something that could just be like – it will have that emotional right. visceral reaction among a certain group of people, but it will, it'll go from the most silly thing or not silly, but to, you know, kind of fleeting things that become controversial, like uh, Colin Kaepernick. Mm-hmm. We know that Russian trolls jumped on that because people were either outraged because he was violating uh, or disrespecting the troops or people were very, uh, very, steadfast in the, their belief that this was his first amendment right. right and you see this converse this bash back and forth and something like this is just leading to taunts and just well, it's crazy because the disinformation has not allowed the story to come out like i 
in full disclosure, I'm on the side of the First Amendment on this, but Kaepernick actually asked a former Navy SEAL what he should do. Really? To, yeah. So yeah. basically, he asked a former Navy SEAL, who was a football player also for the Seahawks as a guy, and said, okay, I want to protest police violence. I want to do it respectfully. Mm. What can I do that doesn't be disrespectful to the flag? And he's like, take a knee. So it wasn't like him like wearing a chase sweatshirt and being like hating America. He literally right. asked a Navy SEAL combat veteran, yeah. what's the best way to do this? Now, that story should be something we can have a conversation about. You can still disagree with Kaepernick. Absolutely. But everything has been like the, the, the extremes. And I think that's one thing. What I want to ask you about, and, and this is, we talked a little bit about this the last podcast, but all these things come together on whether they start on social media or other places. And that's where RT kind of comes in and, and just starts making it a national story or an international story mm. and legitimizes a Facebook post and it becomes this big news story that even I mean, most mainstream news media doesn't pick up RT as a source anymore, but others that aren't quite as big do. Right. Certainly. This is a, this is a really important point that you bring up because... So RT is just, I kind of think of it now as a piece of a larger disinformation puzzle, or machine, rather. And I think what has been so stark and shocking to see is, for example, uh, Russian outlets has long been involved in spreading conspiracy theories. I've done some research on this, and there's some value in spreading conspiracy theories in general, even if they're not related to even if they're not related to politics mm -hmm. necessarily, but spreading conspiracy theories can lead to this greater psychological effect of not trusting authorities, right. of not trusting the government, of not trusting what the mainstream media is saying. So there ten tends to have this kind of secondary impact to spreading conspiracy theories. So you'll see that it's kind of a, uh, a common thing or a theme that is um, characteristic of Russian media, of Russian trolling. And you don't really know a lot of times where that source is coming mm -hmm. from. And um, I think one of the, the most stark things to see is now the overlap between American media now adopting some of those conspiratorial hyperpartisan beliefs because it's far more toxic, far more divisive, and far more impactful when you have it coming from the words of somebody like, and I'm going to say the name, somebody like Sean Hannity mm -hmm. or Tucker Carlson. You know, um, they have loyal followings that really and truly think that they're the only truth tellers. And, um, and when their job is to create a narrative or protect a certain person in an administration at all costs, no matter what the story is, I mean, that's not a public service, I, I don't think. And that's creating to this, creating uh, this contributing to this toxic divide in America because now we can't even agree on a central, on just the most basic, right. basic facts. Did this happen? Did this not happen? Um, everything is politicized. Everything is um, a matter of seeing things through a political lens. And I think that's why you've seen, um, you've heard people like in the intelligence community that have long been known for for being silent on these things, actually speaking up because they, I, from you know what I've heard from them, and is that this is a, this is the time to speak right. up. Um, I mean, it's scary for Americans to be able to, or to, for Americans to, 
be so divisive. And I read the statistic, and um, I always say, just always, oh, always verify, but that we are the most divided. And I'm not sure about the context of this since since the Civil War, something to that effect. Um, I mean, 75% of statistics are made up on the spot. So it's important. I swear I didn't make that one up. Um, There is some backing to that one. But I mean, you just have to go on social media to right. have to see to see it before your eyes you're like oh i mean it's certainly kneeling. A, I, oh my gosh no we can't talk about this it's certainly a libtard yeah. you blah blah right. blah it's just this name calling and this right. utter breakdown of civility i mean certainly um, since the vietnam era i mean i think that people in the 60s may may have something to say about that statistic but the riots and the civil rights movement and vietnam yeah. protests but i no, do think social media yeah. has exacerbated well that's a thing it, I, you look back and think about if twitter existed in the 60s we may not have a country anymore <laughs> right? I mean, that, that's the, with that much passion with actual both right and left wing terrorists in the united states you exactly. know actually violence and everything else thank goodness yeah. there was no social media right, back exactly. then let me ask you about something that, that's been out of the news because um, our attention span, I'm surprised it lasted as long as it did, but our attention span is so short that we yeah. don't realize that there Seriously. is still a lot of fighting going on in Ukraine right now. Oh and my gosh. This is, uh, you know, it was a big deal for a little while and then it's kind of petered out um, and certainly over Crimea. And then like you mentioned, the Baltics, the Baltics are, are not all that, sleeping all that well right now. Yeah. Um, and, and we kind of, we really insulate ourselves thinking, woe is me, it was the election, like they messed with us. But they're physically messing with the countries on their border. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think Ukraine was really a big kind of watershed moment. And that is a place where you see disinformation, cyber hacking, uh, where it's happening at the same time that a ground war is happening. So here in eastern Ukraine, you have tanks, you have, you have troops that had come in from Russia, and, um, and there's real lives being lost, real people losing their lives, pe- real people going without re- electricity, um, soldiers that, are, that, that disappear. I mean, it's a, it's a grim, grim situation. It started in 2014, by the way, uh, during a revolution, that ousted a man named Viktor Yanukovych, who was, guess what, propped up by a man named Paul Manafort. Right. Um, and so I think when, uh, since I had done some some researching and reporting and became very intimately involved, what visited Ukraine, um, when I found out that he became a key player in this campaign, I mean, that was alarm bells galore. Right. Um, and then seeing some other characters become involved, the Ukraine story, I think, is very, is very, very close in, in some regard to our story mm-hmm. in terms of, I mean, they ousted a pro-Russian president. Um, you had an unsavory character that was trying to get a certain candidate to win at all costs. Um, there's too many parallels right. for a country that is not a stable democracy. And it's sad because they do want to become part of the European Union. They do want to become part of NATO, but it's just so in such disarray. And we can't accept or just per rules that they need to enact a certain type of reform. You know, they well, need that to was re- the plan, right? I mean, that's that's what Putin's trying to do is to make Ukraine so chaotic that they can't join the European Union. They can. Yeah. And it's been largely successful. Yeah. Here we are. 
several five six cents since 2014 at least uh since made on um a million displaced um and it's it's based uh, it's disputed the word to call it but it's just a it, there's no end in sight well i mean but there doesn't need to be for the russians right they they're they've defined victory in a very different way than we might think right they, they've won mm-hmm. right Putin doesn't need to necessarily annex Ukraine. Mm-hmm. He just needs to make sure Ukraine doesn't go west. Under, under and the a, Yeah, under the EU or under NATO, and it never will as long as this chaos is going on. I mean, exactly. I think that's... And well, they and so in that way, in that regard, it, it's a win for them because right. Ukraine's not going to advance, uh, no matter how hard they try. I mean, they certainly um, there's great Ukrainians out there, and there's certainly some that are very passionate about reforms. We saw that during Maidan, during the uprising, when people were fighting for democratic values. They were they wanted uh, pro-European Union uh, reforms and all of that. Like people literally got into the streets and uh, and fought for it and and died for it. Um, I don't know, and I think that's a a reminder of how fragile democracy can be. Um, and how chaotic things can be. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to compare us to Ukraine, mm-hmm. but there are parallels there. I mean, there's literal personalities right. that are tied that are tied in together. Um, so they they see it as it's funny because they say, uh, "You Americans, you, you have a lot to learn from our story <laughs> in Ukraine." Right. Well, I mean, you mentioned the word personality, and this what's amazing historically, like. There's a lot of debates in history about should you focus on kind of low-level groups and the kind of almost like sociological movements, and mm-hmm. or should you focus on the big names, the personalities? Mm-hmm. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. This is a back and forth argument that's happened, you know, history theory for the last 200 years about like, don't focus on the big men of history, focus on like the grassroots movements and stuff. That's where change really happens. But Mm -hmm. I think the big name people are winning out now because everything now is so personality driven. I mean, you mentioned Hannity and Tucker Carlson. RT did a great job of this where they hired these well-known American media personalities from Ed Schultz and others. Yeah, there's Katrina Larry Pe- King, right? Yeah, I mean, Katrina Pearson right, right now. So people that... Works at RT, walks over to apparently Trump Tower. Right. <laughs> there's no line anymore. There are no lines. Well, but even on, even on the left side of the spectrum also, like, you know, people 
will trust Rachel Maddow mm-hmm. when she says something without looking and backing it up. And I think that the personality side is an interesting one because you made an argument recently that we've perhaps been focusing maybe not too much, but exclusively mm-hmm. on Russia's use of the far right mm-hmm. and not necessarily paying as much attention as we should to Russia's use of the far left Oh yes, as a, as a way to divide America. Oh, yes. And that's a big worry for me because I think that a lot of Americans want to see just our basic, just to see everything just for some form of normalcy. And I know that I, I, I can hear, I can hear that the, the Twitterers, some, some of you are Russian trolls. Don't think you don't know <laughs> exactly who you are. Uh, but they're like, oh, normal was bad for us, blah, 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 blah. But I mean, the, ter- the return of civility, the ability to have these debates in a non-toxic manner, um, the ability to work in a bipartisan way, um, the ability to feel like neo-Nazis are not on the rise. Right. You know, um, just I just feel like we are on this constant brink of of um, anxiety, uh, and uh, and I actually wrote an op-ed about this about actually my worry about because you know the pendulum swings right. and I worry about it overcorrecting for the same reason you know, as you had mentioned that and and I and I saw at my time there you know not really not really uh, foreshadowing. Uh, where we'd be so many years later. But w- what they did, uh, even back in 2013, 2014, and it was, it, it was a strategy, was to amplify voices on both sides right. of the extremes. Well, because Ed Schultz is a great example of this. Like, he was on Air America, was super left-wing. Mm-hmm. I th- if I remember right, and again, full disclosure, I just listened to that on the radio, he and Maddow had, like, shows back-to-back. Right. right. So she went on to MSNBC. He went to RT. Right. But right. they had the same political persuasion. Right. So this is a super lefty uh-huh. who was on RT. So it's not necessarily he's not spouting the same stuff Sean Hannity is. He's coming from the opposite direction. Right. And you see it for stuff like the Venezuela story. Right. The idea mm. of like American imperialism. And you start seeing those words coming mm. out. That is kind of sounds very leftist. Mm-hmm. And it is. And that rings a bell and <coughs> and, and also resonates with another segment of of uh, the spectrum of our political spectrum. And you could see that even during the campaign with um, the now disgraced former national security advisor, uh, Michael Flynn. He was at a, at a gal actually honoring RT and Russian media sitting next to Putin, but also sitting next to him was Jill Stein. So I mean that's not a that's not that's not a coincidence. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a strategy behind that, uh, and that is to inflame and amplify both sides of the extreme ends of the, of a political spectrum. Uh, because you know for many people for many Americans, Jill Stein is simply not palatable, right. um, and arguably she took some votes away from somebody. Um, yeah, so it's, um, so that, I think that's something that needs to be really, um, understood and paid attention to as we go into 2020, Right. because it's debatable. We see that they try to exploit divisive issues and obviously any Russian hawks are going to, the trolls are going to go against, they probably mostly, most likely want to hack their emails and spread that out and try to get that kind of, because it's that kind of, that's, you know, what happened with the DNC. Um, but going into 2020, I think, um, and we've already heard from our intelligence officials that this kind of 
meddling, uh, whether it's through disinformation or cyber hacking or who knows, uh, we, hopefully we're sta- we are taking the utmost precautions when it comes to safeguarding our actual uh, voting records, right. all of that. And um, because, I mean, uh, that, that, that's for me, um, and, and it's hard because it's such a complex issue, I think, or because it's very, it's very easy to say something like Medicare for all. You know, it's so easy to understand. It's so easy to galvanize a large group of mm-hmm. people. But like something that ambitious is not going to be accomplished if we can't first come together as Americans and say, we live in an era where we have the we, this digital era which allows for foreign powers and other other you know people like Iran I mean I think uh, Russia's working on honing their craft but people like China China and, and Iran are, are they're learning mm-hmm. um, and this is going to continue to be something that is going to impact our internal politics unless we really take action and fix it and address it so for me it's it's really important to to have that be a top issue because it, it's a national security issue at the end of the day right i mean everyone learned from russia i mean it's not hard you look at one of those successful covert actions in world history mm-hmm. and you're an idiot if you don't go oh that's how we get to the americans right you're, we're not going to invade them anytime soon but if you can get them to tear themselves apart right then we've accomplished our mission right um, a little bit about what you were talking about there my worry is that there is a perception on the left um that anything Trump touches is bad and involved with the Russia mm-hmm. thing, uh, conflating dislike of Trump with legitimate concerns. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be a backlash about going too far too fast. Mm-hmm. And it certainly gives ammunition to the whole the witch hunt crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it make, people make big mistakes. And you can see in the last couple of months, there's been major reporting mistakes mm-hmm. that you know, were going to be bombshell stories that turn out to be nonsense. Right. If I'm Russia... I great. plant a bombshell story <laughs> exactly. like this. I plant it with evidence. I plant it with documents because those aren't hard to make because they're not trying to support Trump. I think that's right. the argument. Right now, they don't give a rat's ass yeah. what happens. We that, know that they did support what, Trump, but now it's let's support whoever is going to cause the most it, chaos. Right, a chaos would be an impeachment hearing and all those other things. So why not now switch gears mm-hmm. and foment that by putting out you know kind of news stories that, that go... And so you start to see an overreaction, like the the Kushner security clearance thing. He sounds like he probably shouldn't have gotten clearance, but it's the president's prerogative to give whoever the hell clearance he wants to. Right. But Congress now has overreacted in such a way where they're going to like do a bill about, no, you're not, because the executive branch deals with security clearance, right? Right. So to me, the left is kind of almost walking right into this trap that's been laid right. by the Russians. So... On the one hand, I think he should have a legitimate security clearance to, just to push back on that, just like everybody else. And if he has any shady or non-shady foreign contacts, just disclose them. Um, oh, there's no question that yeah. that, that was about <laughs> as problematic as it gets. Right. Yeah. Um, but, and, but, and yeah, I think there's the, just because I think normalcy has been so eroded that this, the nation is on edge. I mean, especially for those that have developed a distaste for Trump. Um, I mean, some of the things you're seeing, some of these tell-all books come out, and they essentially, if not necess- not exact anecdotes, they essentially corroborate each other in terms of the climate and the 
the tone and the the nastiness and the incivility and um, I'm trying to use adjectives that aren't too harsh. Well, no, I, I know it's, I mean, so for, from my perspective as a kind of a national security professional, there's a dramatic difference between Stormy Daniels payoffs, granted that might have election law consequences, but mm. I don't really care yeah. about that. And what happened at Helsinki where it was almost like that was handing over the country to Putin. See, right? that was an right. alarm bell moment. Right. And so to me, I, I, I'm worried from a national security perspective, and again, not going all the way up to the president, but looking at, because there's, I will reiterate this and I'll reiterate this again, there's absolutely no direct evidence that we've seen that links Donald Trump, President of the United States, to Russia. Now, we might see that in a week. Mm-hmm. We might see that. Mueller's when, coming. Right, when the Mueller report, <laughs> but right now there's not. But Manafort, Roger Stone, links with Julian Assange and with Gustavar 2.0, mm-hmm. Carter Page, Steve Bannon, right? The list goes on and on I of know. the underlings. And I the mean, minions. it's getting a little too close for comfort. Sure, but he could have just not known anything about it. I mean, look, we're talking about a guy who legitimately may not have known anything about he what was going on, right? My point, though, is that a lot of this is just from a national security perspective is a distraction, mm-hmm. right? You want to be uncivil. You want to feed McDonald's to Clemson's football team. You want to be a buffoon and say stupid stuff. Great. Mm-hmm. We've had idiot presidents before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the national I mean, security the, perspective is the problematic these one. These are pretty impressive uh, one-liners. <laughs> well, sure, right? Yeah. But I mean, look, yeah. you know, there, there, there have been people who have said dumb shit before. Yeah. But I'm sure I have. Well, I mean, sure. I don't think I, I don't right? see you saying anything dumb, though, Vince. Well, we edit stuff out. That's why no one hears it. I mean, <laughs> hey, I want two-way editing yes. here. I want say Bill in this Clinton process. Bill debated the definition of the word "is" in front of Congress, right? I mean, <laughs> so that maybe that sounded smart or not, but that he was not necessarily the most above-board guy, right? Right. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, there's no indications that he sold us out to a foreign country. And, That's and, yeah. Well, so, and this yeah. is the thing. Right. Like people don't understand levels of bad, or not people. I don't want to say people. You know, people. It's like saying the media. Well, there's certain members of the media right now that are not doing democracy a service by not doing what they can to communicate the truth to the public. Because at the end of the day, you know, the public uh, when come voting day, they're going to be the deciders. Um, hopefully, if democracy works as planned. Um, uh, and there's a, there's a spectrum of bad. So, uh, so I think right now, or there has been a time where the right has had its moment. And for example, Charlottesville and some of the, you know, the resurgence of, of, of the far right. But as I said, far left is not, is not in the clear. And that's not, that's not to say that the pendulum is going to swing and it's going to create even more havoc and more chaos because we already there's there's already Americas living on two different ends of the reality planet right now and i worry that that can only get worse i mean you're you hear about some some very left people talking about primary uh primarying centrist candidates right and i mean that's not going to um you know without getting too political i mean that's that's not building consensus even within your own party. Um, but I'll push back on you a little bit. I wasn't going to do this, but let's push back. You're running. I'm ready. I'm you're, ready. Push you're, back. You're running against <laughs> one of the most centrist Republicans that's in the House of Representatives right now, and that's Will Hurd, who has voted against Trump now not as much as perhaps people would have liked, but voted mm-hmm. against the wall, the emergency declaration. Vote, mm-hmm. you know. So he would be 
define in many respects as kind of a centrist. He would be, he, he would be defined, well, I, I, and, and I'm going to push back again. Oh, that's fine. Um, and say uh, that he is a very good politician, um, doing some, some talking to locals. Uh, he's very, very good at putting a very good public face okay. on. Uh, and when, and he actually did vote on at least once on the $5 billion allocation for the wall. And then afterwards, he goes out, and he knows it's, it's not popular. It's, it's, they're hugely Latino. Uh, the largest stretch of the border right. is on that district. He's the only member of Congress right now that is a Republican that uh, is, represents a district that is a border district. Um, so he needs, he, needs to toe, he needs to toe that line very, very carefully. And that's the politically expedient thing to do. Um, there's certainly been instances where he has voted one way and has spoken another because he knows that that vote is not going to be popular in the district. So he's very, very savvy at getting out in front of the story before you can really evaluate how he's voted. How your campaign motto is not Liz Wall, the only wall that Texas needs is... <laughs> you know, I, a friend yeah. of mine, a friend of mine, we were joking around and like, well, should we put it in there or yes. is that too cheesy? But then somebody said it on Twitter yeah, no, it's, and I'm like, uh, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to let it just play out naturally. So let me, let me, the reason, <laughs> the reason I wanted to kind of twinkle into your can your congressional can't, that's all we're going to talk about to a degree because you've received since you left RT and you've spoken out a lot of pushback from from trolls, from others, right. not only on the Russian side, but what we like to call useful idiots. Yeah. Um, particularly a recent article linking you to British intelligence. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that or not. Uh, I wish. Help me out. <laughs> yeah, no, basically about, you know, you uh, think tanks that have been linked to British intelligence pushing yeah. back against the Russian. Um, and, and is it, are we in an era of ad hominem attacks, basically going after people versus arguments now? I mean, it seems like we're almost in a position where it, it's attack the person and not go after the argument. I, I worry about that with, with again, with the, kind of the Trump stuff too as well of, look, even even the, the evangelicals and the far right say that he's not a good dude. Mm. But, you know, maybe he legitimately wants Some to do. bring... Some well, do. Well, all right, but most most don't. I mean, you know, he maybe wants to bring legitimately bring peace to the to the Koreans, the Korean people in the Korean Peninsula. All right. Maybe, I, like, I like this optimist in no, you. No, no, what I'm saying I'm is really like, liking right, it. Right, so let, let's but the, the <laughs> attack the policy and not the person. Now, maybe that's problem that's coming into play with you also, is that you see there's very few people coming out and arguing what you said, mm. but they're going after you and your connections and kind of a guilt by association. Yeah. You know. Even though I've spoken at about over 10 countries, uh, I think that moment uh, spurred an awareness about Russian disinformation uh, in a way that is because because as you said people have short attention spans but what was great and um because trolls aside and those that for whatever reason don't want to put that action into context in terms of what was going on in ukraine what was going on going on in syria and everything that's happened after and want to reduce actually what i what was a very difficult decision and had kind of swirled my life into a a frenzy on many fronts. Uh, I'm absolutely glad that I did make that stance at that time, and I've been very, uh, very vigilant in in 
continuing to watch how our democracy is under assault in these new ways. Um, and it's a message that I continue to take uh, through, through reporting, through writing, through speaking, through traveling, um, because I think it's such an important issue. And, and I feel like when I'm in Europe, and maybe it's just the audience, but there is more of a widespread understanding uh, perhaps because they're right on the border of of what kind of a, a problem that is. I mean, especially if you are um, the Baltic countries because of that proximity. In Ukraine, disinformation is without question a top national security issue alongside the ground war right. because they real they're they're inseparable. They they go together. Um, some of these ground war operations or cyber hacks and all of that. They, they happen with disinformation campaigns. Um, so there is a huge, huge, huge awareness in places like Ukraine because they, it's so stark to them. And, it's their, and there's a realization of their, um, their existence at risk uh, based on these new threats by new media and hacking right. and all of that. And, of course, the Baltic countries have taken notice and other European countries from... France to to Norway to Germany they've all experienced attacks on their democracies by foreign powers so you see um, more of a push and um, sadly even though we're seeing kind of a rise of more uh, populist or authoritarian politics on both sides of the Atlantic that there is more awareness and more of a push to do something about it um, certainly, for example, in in hate in um, in Germany, hate laws are very right. uh, robust. Well, they've had a history; they've t- to learn just a little bit. Uh, they, un- uh, <laughs> you know, in the, in their minds, they understand what belongs in a museum as part of a of a history. I mean, it's something like the National Spy Museum. Right. There's maybe some things here. I, I know that you're going to be having a a grand opening at this fabulous new location here. Um, There's some things that belong in a museum, and there's others that maybe shouldn't be in the public to be venerated by those that um, use it as a symbol of of hate. Right. Uh, So you see in in Germany, um, and and there's arguments even in in the Baltic countries about maybe these uh, Stalin-era statues it's time for them to be taken down and relocated. Well, I mean, my worry, um, and I, I get really don't give a rat's ass. No offense to you, who wins, <laughs> who wins your race or not? Uh, because hey. we know we, we know Will very well. He's a member of our board, and and so really, but, but no, but I'm right down the middle on this one because uh, we're apolitical here at the International Spy Museum. Mm. Um, so you like us both. I like you both equally well. I will be happy no matter who wins. Thank you. Um, but there's also the social issues, which is another venue. You can deal with that somewhere else. Uh, <laughs> yes. But my worry, my worry for your sake, in all honesty, is there, there has not been as high profile anti-Russia candidate exactly running for a major office in the United States says that you've poked your eye I mean you poked your finger right into the eye oh my god of the Russian government by that you're on on air yeah quitting RT they don't like me are you gearing up for a hell of a, a campaign because they're gonna come after you yeah um I hope you got a good cyber firm lying around I mean that that's that <laughs> I mean I I, I I can't imagine that you're going to be get by scot free without having some problems that are because of Russia. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely something that I thought about. 
Uh, Marco Rubio had those problems. No. Uh, I, I would imagine uh, as the primaries come closer and if I win the primaries and it becomes down to, uh, I mean, he's all, uh, I don't want to get into the specifics of the race, uh, but but you're right. That's certainly something that I worry about because they certainly wouldn't want me because obviously one thing that I'm going to be tough on is Russian disinformation mm. and beefing up our cybersecurity, um, our cybersecurity infrastructure, specifically as it pertains to safeguarding our democracy against these kinds of attacks. Certainly that's something that they don't want um, somebody sounding the alarm bell on so so vigorously and so focused on it because I do believe in so strongly that this is a new threat that we face. I mean, this is, and, and this is something that has been, validated and verified by our seven our, our all our intelligence agencies like this is not something that's being pulled out of thin air this is something that unanimously our intelligence agencies agree on and yet here we are not really taking serious serious steps to address it because it's chaos galore in so many facets of american life right now but in my point of view, I think um, it's safeguarding your democracy comes first. Right. Not to say that the other issues are not important, but um, well, it's hard to get it to other issues first. if you don't actually have a democratic That's process it. that works. Right? That is my point, Vince. Yes, I, th- I, I see you tilting uh, Liz Wall right now. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So Liz Wall is a journalist and now congressional candidate for the 23rd District of Texas, um, which is a ginormous district. I think it's like 800 miles long. It's going to be a lot of driving. A lot of driving and knocking on doors. Um, Check out the other podcast that Liz and I did about a year and a half ago to get more of her background. But Liz, thank you so much for taking the time today again to talk to us here on SpyCast. Uh, Good luck in moving forward. We'll either talk to you... um, before 20, the election of 2020 or yeah. right after. And it's going to be an interesting ride. Yeah, you're going to have a lot of work to do between now and then, <laughs> but uh, we appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much, Vince. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we'll post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week.